0: Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Thomson Reuters' Westlaw Edge and Answer One. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at AnswerOne.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's AnswerTheNumberOne.com. And now, on to the show.
1: Welcome to the ABA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
2: Welcome to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast, where we talk to legal innovators who have reinvented the profession and practice of law. I'm Angela Morris, a podcast host for the ABA Journal. Today, I'm talking to Luz Herrera, a law professor who has spearheaded low bono legal representation in the United States. This is a way to combat the access to justice problem by figuring out how lawyers can charge fees that low and middle income people can actually afford. The ABA Journal named Luz a 2009 legal rebel for her pioneering ideas about low bono legal representation. Welcome to the show, Luz. Thank you, Angela. I'm so glad to uh, talk with you today. The first question is, um, you know, since the ABA Journal named you a legal rebel, you've actually moved. Uh, You've changed jobs. You used to work as a law professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego. Now you're here in my home state of Texas, working at Texas A&M University School of Law in Fort Worth. So why did you make that move? Well, there were several moves in between there. <laughs> uh, I think since I moved to
3: a and M, I I spent a year visiting at the University of California in Irvine, working on a special project for the um, then-California Attorney General Kamala Harris. That was a consumer law clinic uh, that was ran by Professor Katie Porter at the time. We now have an attorney general who's now a senator and a former professor who's now a congresswoman, <laughs> but they were really working on the national mortgage settlement, um, and uh, we ran, I, I went to Irvine to help run a semester of a clinical, a consumer clinic, that helped uh, the attorney general's office monitor the bank's compliance with the with the settlement. Uh, so I was there for a year, and once I was there, um, I had the opportunity to Applied for a job at UCLA and became their assistant dean for ex- clinical education, experiential learning, and public service. So I was at UCLA Law School for two years, overseeing um, the implementation of their clinical program and other experiential courses. And uh, while I was there, I had Texas A&M give me a call and said, "Hey, we." open to school, <laughs> and we'd love for you to come out here. And I said, nope, I'm not going to move to Texas. <laughs> and they called me again, said they said, would you reconsider, and let's fly you out to Fort Worth. We're doing some very exciting things. And um, So I said, well, I'll, I'll agree to fly out and check it out. And I went, and they sold me. So I was able to get a job offer there and move to Texas. My husband and I have been there for a little bit over two years, and we love being part of developing a new law school.
2: Texas isn't so bad.
3: No, it's been great. It's been great, and I can actually afford housing.
2: <laughs> all right, yeah, that's a great thing about it. So I would love to hear about your focus nowadays at A&M Law School.
3: I'm the um, Associate Dean for Experiential Education there, which means I oversee their clinical education program, their externships, and their simulation courses. and So it's really all the hands-on training that students get to become lawyers. So that's part of my job. I'm also a tenured faculty member at the law school.
2: Wonderful. I want to kind of go back to the roots. Uh, As I said, you know, the ABA Journal named you a legal rebel for your ideas about low bono legal representation. And I know that you still have your toe in that world, so to speak you know, you've been doing it long before it was a buzzword. But like today, I mean, it really has spread uh, a lot farther. And I'm interested to hear what you have to say about what is exactly happening in the world of lobono practice today.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, I think there's a a greater understanding, right? At first, there's still a lot of people that don't like the name. And, you know, I'm I'm sure there's better names for it. But But I think it's become just much more common practice. And what I've really been excited about is how new graduates have taken to it and really understood the concept. Uh, I think the biggest change or the biggest thing that has happened in the last 10 years is this uh, shift of figuring out how to make low bono work through the nonprofit model. And so we've had a lot of organizations that have sprung up developing nonprofits to see how some of the low bono work could be subsidized through a nonprofit vehicle. So... You know, every state has its different regulations about how these nonprofits can operate. So what works in Utah might not work in California, but I think that's been the biggest development over the course of the last uh, five years that is really different.
2: That's awesome. I mean, I wanted to ask you about nonprofit law firms as well. For example, there at Texas A&M, you've been organizing the Incubator Consortium. It's a conference for uh, both legal incubators and nonprofit law firms. What is the most cutting-edge work? Well, the the Incubator Consortium is actually
3: a conference that rotates different locations. So the one this year is going to be in Salt Lake City. The one last year was in Georgia. Uh, The year before was in Texas A&M. So it's really um, a consortium of different individuals that are, are organizing a conference where directors of incubator programs and participants in those programs but also leaders of nonprofit law firms can come together once a year To share information about best practices, we often get sponsors who contribute to to these programs and believe in the low bono model to also participate in the conference. And so it's really an opportunity for folks who are usually off working in their own communities and trying to make a living and also do good (laughs) and provide, uh, serve a gap. So time for them to come together and, and really support each other and build on what they're doing.
2: Yeah, that sounds great. Well, let's talk more about uh, the nonprofit law firm space. Uh, What do you think are the benefits of going the nonprofit route rather than a for-profit low bono practice?
3: It depends on where you are in terms of if you're able to do them. But if you're working for a nonprofit, I think the biggest benefit that new graduates have seen is that they can qualify for loan forgiveness programs if they're working for nonprofits over an extended period of, I think, 10 years. So that's one of the biggest draws to a lot of individuals. Uh, But there's obviously also the ability to subsidize the work so that you might be able to uh, get some additional funding to support the work that is being done, and that becomes a way to subsidize the fees and the costs that incurred and the overhead expenses that are incurred in providing legal services.
2: Are you referring to getting, like, uh, grants and fellowships from like philanthropic foundations.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and also individual contributions, right? Donations. I mean, the biggest, the biggest uh, way that the nonprofit sector works is by every one of us opening up our own pocketbooks and donating five dollars or five hundred dollars. So that allows lawyers to also uh, raise funds, not just to grants, but also through people who support their work that are part of the community that want to make sure that others in the community are able to um, benefit from legal services.
2: That's very cool. So are they finding that people, you know, have deep pockets for their cause? I don't think that
3: deep pockets are, you know, most people, unfortunately, in, in the U.S. don't have deep pockets these days. But the contributions of 5 to $25 to $100 uh, really make a difference. And so, so I, I do think there are people, particularly those who have struggled through a legal issue, who understand the need for... Um, subsidizing legal services and for providing different options than only market rate that will make a contribution.
2: That's really encouraging.
3: Yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of data um, on some of this work. And one of the things that we're beginning to do is have a conversation nationally about how do we help sponsor more research to see how these organizations are functioning, what, what we can do to better support these efforts. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get more information about best practices in this area.
2: Yeah, yeah. Some law professor listening to this hopefully will uh, take up the cause. Okay, I want to talk with you more about this stuff. But before we move on, we're going to just take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and
0: potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter AnswerOne Virtual Receptionist. They're more than just an answering service. AnswerOne's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. AnswerOne helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-ANSWER-1 or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. That's answer the number one.com. The Insights from the Edge podcast series brings you the latest legal trends as inside attorneys sit down with industry experts. Stay informed on the latest topics, including our latest episode on five ways to identify the best AI. Check out this episode on The Legal Current from Thomson Reuters to learn how to evaluate AI solutions to ensure you have the best tools for your legal research.
2: All right, welcome back. I'm Angela Morris, and this is the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast, and I am talking with Luz Herrera, a law professor at Texas A&M Law School in Fort Worth. Hi there, Luz. Hi. Let's talk about legal incubators. This is something you've been involved with for a long time. And, uh, you know, a legal incubator, they train and mentor young attorneys to go solo and represent regular people. Um, It is an answer to the access to justice problem. And you know something, I've written about this in the past, and there really are a ton of incubators in law schools and bar associations. In your own opinion and what you've observed, how much good do you think that these things have done to solve the access to justice problem so far?
3: I think they've done a lot of good. And I'm in the process of working with the American Bar Association to figure out how to begin to quantify the good that they've done. But, you know, I think it's really provided an opportunity for people who would not have otherwise gotten the service to be able to get either a 30 minute free consultation or a document prep that was part of maybe a, a clinic that incubators do in conjunction with legal aid, or somebody was able to afford a divorce that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. So I think they've done a lot of good because it's very hard to measure the impact in the community because, you know, these are individual consumers that get the services, and because we have, I think, I don't know what the actual number is today, but at some point it was between 45 and 60 incubators or incubator-type programs that were listed on the ABA website. Um, But if you have these programs around the U.S., you're going to have a new activity that didn't otherwise exist so that's just on the consumer end that we need to figure out how to quantify this better. But I, I do think we have a lot of anecdotal information. And there are some of these programs that have kept data that we hopefully will be sharing and publishing soon. But the other part is that we're also helping you know, train lawyers, helping them educate and helping them get on track and helping them develop a passion for this work. Because there are going to be people that will do the low-bono work and work in incubators for a period of time Uh, like I did, right, and then go on to other things. I mean, I I had my own practice for for about um, six or seven years, and so then I went on to other things. Uh, Low-bono work uh, is not going to be for everyone forever. Uh, It will be for some forever, but not for everyone. But I think um, as we have different cohorts go through that go through this process of setting up their own practices um, and providing these services, then you definitely impact not just the community, but the individual lawyers who are part of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome like you said, like you started out running a low bono practice, you've gone on to other things, but you still very much are in the know about what's happening in this space. And it's, it's really spreading, like it's really growing. Can I ask you, what is something that just makes you excited about the future?
3: Well, I mean, I think what's really exciting is that we have a renewed or a new interest from the National Science Foundation about this area of work. and so. The Academy of Social Sciences has recently um, issued a journal that's focused on access to justice and begins to have a conversation about access to justice on that scope. So having, you know, kind of top academics and researchers begin to pay attention to the, the gap of legal services and the need for different models is really, really exciting.
2: Wow, I had no idea about that. Thank you for sharing. You know, I just have one more question for you. We've kind of hinted at this a little bit already, but whether it's a for-profit, low-bono practice or it's a non-profit law firm, I mean, the truth is it's great for lawyers to have a job, but they aren't going to make top dollar when they're focusing on serving low- and middle-income people. Can you tell me just why would you argue that they should do it anyways?
3: Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you wanted to make money, law school's not the path to go. (laughs) You should go to business school or, you know, get some great engineering degree and go figure out a job in Silicon Valley is going to pay you top notch, right? So the percentage of lawyers making the top money is is pretty small, um, particularly when you first come out of law school. There's also a whole lot of students, including, you know, myself, you know, go into law school thinking they're going to law school to help people. <laughs> and there's plenty of studies that along the line they, you know, say, well, there's student debt and there's, you know, kind of real life and so I have to pay my bills, so I'm going to go do something else. Um, but but I think some of this work really allows law school graduates and attorneys to balance both, to be able to say I'm doing some good but I'm figuring out how to make a living I'm not going to be capped at a public interest salary if I'm able to develop a great business plan that allows me to, to make more than what, you know, maybe my local um, public service organization would pay. So I think there's opportunity to make a living. You know, when I when I had my own practice, I was able to you know, I got myself a car. It wasn't a new car. It was two years old, but it it was nice. I liked it and <laughs> I was proud of it. Um, I was able to buy a home um, and I was able to buy a commercial building. So, you know, it's not necessarily going to be able to generate um, tons of money where, you know, I, I think there's There's a lot of zeros missing in my pension as a result of doing this work for (laughs) six to seven years. But the satisfaction that I received, the relationships that I built, and I was able to figure out how to make a living and and live a reasonable life. Uh, I didn't live in a penthouse. I didn't have new cars. But it really depends on what your priorities are and what you want to make of the profession.
2: Yeah, doing good and, and making an impact sometimes is worth more than money, huh?
3: Yeah, for some people. And for those who don't, then these are not the right projects for them, right? So, But I think there's a great sector of lawyers and law students and prospective law students who go into law because they want to make a difference.
2: Yeah. Well, God bless them. Luz, I have really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Angela. It was a pleasure.
2: That is all the time we have today. I'm Angela Morris, and you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. Bye bye.
1: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit legalrebels.com, legaltalknetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.